it takes a toll on you. And so the beginning was really hard. And I decided to go into therapy at that point because it was really intense in terms of how are we going to scale this business? We barely have any funding. We barely have any people, etc. I think, you know, as a piece of advice for anyone who's going through this is find an outlet that is helpful for you. For me, it was therapy. I'm Carly Zakin. I'm Danielle Weisberg. Welcome to Skim from the Couch. This podcast is where we go deep on career advice from women who have lived it, from the good stuff like hiring and growing a team to the rough stuff like negotiating your salary and giving or getting hard feedback. We started the skim from a couch, so what better place to talk it all out than where it began on a couch? Hey everyone, it's Carly. Today, Nora Sakija joins me on Skimmed from the Couch. She is the co-founder and CEO of Majuri, a direct-to-consumer jewelry brand that is changing the game by getting rid of traditional markups and by positioning jewelry as an everyday luxury. I like the sound of that. And as we'll get into, jewelry runs in Nora's blood. She is the third generation of her family to go into the business. Nora, thank you so much for coming on the show. Welcome to Skim from the Couch. Thank you for having me. I'm so excited. I'm so excited. I've been a fan of yours for a long time. So it's nice to put a face to the name behind the brand. I would love to start the way we like to start all of our combos here, which is have you skim your resume for us. So I uh, studied in my undergrad industrial engineering, and then I I grew up in Jordan and I decided to move to Canada uh, when I was uh, 22, 23, because I had done an internship in Canada and I really loved it. And so I decided to move back. And then I uh, started doing my MBA part-time while also working and consulting full-time. I did that for about five years and then decided to start Majuri. We're going to get into all of that. But uh, before we do that, what is something that we can't Google about you that your team doesn't know about you? It's so funny. I actually, I'm barely, I'm not active on social media. So there's a lot uh, that's not out there. <laughs> but I guess one of the things that was funny is, is you know, my family being so traditional in the fine jewelry industry, industry they all thought I was crazy to try to sell jewelry online. That's something that I don't talk about a lot, but we joke about it all the time now with my family. Okay. So we've already mentioned your family a few times. So let's just, let's go to it. You are the third generation in your family to work in the jewelry business. Talk to me a little bit just about your family, about your childhood and their experience in the industry. Yeah. So growing up in the jewelry industry, I, I really got, you can imagine the, the dinner conversations are about gemstones and, and production. And, the, you know, it, it was really interesting to see the jewelry industry from the inside. And so being born in that, I um, definitely gained a lot of knowledge that I that really helped me with my jewelry. But it also helped me also formulate a point of view about the industry and where I want it to be. And so, you know, really, really loved understanding more about how to manufacture jewelry, about the technical manufacturing techniques, about gemstones, about diamonds, etc. But when I was looking at the industry at a deeper level, um, you know, a lot of jewelry has been traditionally positioned as a gifting product, very classic designs, high price point, and typically it's positioned for men to buy for women on occasions. And so, you know, that, that didn't necessarily resonate with me. And so that's why I decided to take a detour and figure things out for myself. When you were growing up, like, did your parents talk to you about what your career in, in the family business could be? Did they push you one way or another in, into the jewelry business? 
Not necessarily. To be honest, I think one of the things that they were trying to give us all, me and my siblings, freedom to choose what we wanted. But it was always an option. It was always like something that we can go into if we have passion towards it. And, you know, I really loved it. I just didn't love the positioning and the traditional approach towards it. So definitely wasn't pushed into it at all. You have an engineering degree. You ended up becoming a consultant in Canada before you started this. Talk to me a little bit about that moment where you decided to take the leap. Obviously, you know, consultancy, like it's it's a more stable path, <laughs> assumingly so. You have a, a clear salary, a clear trajectory. So talk to, talk to us a little bit about how you knew it was the right time. You were absolutely right. I was working consulting, very predictable. You know, you know what you're getting at the end of the month. You kind of know what you're getting into as well. But I've, I've had this passion. I've had this thing towards fine jewelry and I wanted to do it. And I saw that so many brands were out there for whether it be skincare or fashion that are really changing the game and really modernizing brands. And so I really wanted to do that for jewelry. So I started it as a, as a sort of on the side to set it up, to, you know, work with my partners on technology, on the brand positioning. And then at some point it got crazy because I was doing my MBA. I was working on as a part-time working full-time in consulting and then trying to fit the company in my free time, which wasn't, there wasn't a lot of free time. And so at that point, you know, I said to myself, I don't have a lot of responsibility. You know, I'm by myself. I and my husband and I are together. And so we don't have kids at that point. We didn't have a lot of responsibilities. And so if I wanted to actually give it my hundred percent, then that was the right time. I don't think there will ever be like a right moment to jump into it. And the way that I rationalize it for myself is I'm going to give this 110% because I really do believe in it. But the worst case scenario, you can always go back and do what you were doing before. And so that sort of comforted me. And and I, I took the leap and I quit my job and really dedicated my time towards it. Your co-founder is your husband. You're not the first person on the show whose co-founder is their spouse, but I, I really like, it is something that I, I cannot fathom working with your partner. So, and I know what it is like to have a co-founder, but I also am very protective around like keeping, <laughs> keeping parts of my life separate. So what is that like to work with your husband? It's crazy for us, to be honest. I think a lot of people do it uh, together because it's so hard to start a business that I used to work 16, 17 hours a day. And so if my partner wasn't in a similar lifestyle, I don't know how things would have worked out, to be honest with you. So I think in that sense, it was really a positive. But obviously, you know, it gets tough because we had to put rules around the separation. Exactly like you said, going back home and going on a date, I don't necessarily want to talk about strategy, you know? We really had to set boundaries and and really be honest with each other. Like, I don't want to talk about work now. Can we talk about something else? And so try to figure out how do we create the separation. But I think over time, it just becomes part of your lifestyle. Like, I I just think of Majuri as part of us. And so we became a lot more comfortable, especially as the company grew. And we started to have our own very obvious roles and responsibilities. And I think that is actually something that I would recommend for anyone who's working with their partner is to make sure that you really have clear roles and responsibilities and who essentially is the decision maker on certain areas versus the other. How do you split up the responsibilities? 
So he's uh, the president and COO, and he works on uh, all the revenue generating areas of the business. And I have all of the other areas. We essentially put the strategy together. We work closely together, but we have very different skill sets. I'm, like I said, I'm an engineer. He's more, he's from a finance background. I have deep knowledge in the jewelry industry. So I work closely with a creative, with product, culture, and HR as a CEO, whereas uh, Magid is really focused uh, with the marketing team, uh, retail, and international expansion. And so there's definitely a division that didn't happen overnight. As the company grew, it was more obvious of where do we want to put revenue generation? Where do we want to put the structure of the company, the the culture? And so that's how essentially things came about. The good thing between us is that we have different skill sets. What happens when you disagree? <laughs> we debate. We go back and forth. We go back and forth quite a bit. And we actually... In the company, we have a culture of like challenge directly. So at this point in time, we have a lot of seasoned leaders in the company. So it's not just up to us. We talk to our leaders and it's it's sort of weighing the pros and cons. And that's how we come to, to a decision in the end. If I imagine if I worked for you, if I saw the two you know, most senior people at the company arguing who's a married couple, I would be like, I am now watching a marital fight. I'm going to just like let them do their thing. Are people able to separate you two as a couple from you two as your roles? I think so. I think we've done a really good job in the sense of, like I said, the division of roles and responsibilities. And really at the end of the day, knowing who has the ultimate decision in this area and respecting that. And so that that has been really important. And when we debate, it's never super heated. It's like pros and cons. We're 95% of the time we're on the same page. And the 5% we're not on the same page. I would say it's more tweaking and really respecting who's the ultimate decision maker in that area and just giving them the trust that, you know, I trust your decision, I'm going to follow it. Even if we disagree, we're going to follow it. And, you know, this doesn't happen overnight, but this is, you know, we've been working together for five years, so we kind of have a good flow right now. I want to talk about kind of the entrepreneurial journey, which, you know, we know firsthand has a lot of ups and a lot of downs and can be really isolating. I want to hear you talk a little bit about kind of the isolation. We always talk about, you know, it's a common to say like, it's lonely at the top, right? Danielle and I as co-founders are like, it is really lonely at the top. Like, thank God we have each other because at least we can confide in one another. And I assume you obviously have that with your husband, but talk to me just a little bit about how you experience kind of the isolation that can happen on the entrepreneurial journey and how you dealt with it. Yeah. And and to be honest with you, this is like a constant thing from the get-go and it changes and probably you can relate. In the beginning, the difficulty is you have a barely have a team and you're trying to do everything and you're trying to prove that this is something that is going to succeed. And so that was a lot of stress in the beginning. And because I was primary, I was focused on it full time at the time and my husband wasn't. So I was really uh, on my own with our, we have a founding team member of our CTO and our CCO, our chief creative officer, who are also, you know, core pillars in the company. And they were there since the beginning. So I'm very thankful I've had them also since the beginning. I went through a very tough period in the beginning where it was high stress. And I'm, I would say I'm the kind of person who really is motivated by goals and and achieving these goals. And obviously when things are very difficult, you're not getting that satisfaction as as fast as you'd like to. Um, And so it takes a toll, it takes a toll on you. And so the beginning was really hard. 
uh, I did talk, you know, other times about a tough period that I faced and I decided to go into therapy at that point because it was really intense in terms of how are we going to scale this business? We barely have any funding. We barely have any people, etc. And then, you know, as the company grows, the isolation becomes different in the sense that you're no longer the person who's doing all the work. So you also, the satisfaction is you're kind of becoming behind the scenes. And so that can be a little bit isolating. And you also are aware of all of the wins, which is great, but you're also aware of all of the challenges across the board, whether it be it internal or external. So you're aware of everything at the same time and you you have to make sure that you're structuring communication properly to make sure that, you know, you're continuing to motivate and people are continuing to bring their best self is, you know, especially in COVID is, uh, it was a very tough period for every leader to make sure that they're holding the fort, they themselves are taking care of themselves, and then they also are taking care of the team. So it gets isolating in a different situation. But I think as a piece of advice for anyone who's going through this is find an outlet that is helpful for you. For me, it was therapy. And now I, I continue to go to therapy just because I think it's a really nice outlet for me, uh, whether I'm experiencing something or not. You know, I understand like firsthand, especially in the early days when you're like, are we going to be able to raise money? You know, there's just so much stress that you're you're living with. Were you able to compartmentalize the stress? It, it just seeps into your life. And so I didn't want it to come into also my personal life. And it comes in the fo- very different forms. For me, it was a form of like constantly thinking of the business. And I used to wake up at 3 a.m. to check my email. Like I was anxious about what's going on and what's the next step and how are we going to navigate this, et cetera. So it came in the sense of like constant thinking, constant anxiety, not being able to sort of relax. And then at that point, I was like, you know, I need to take care of myself. And that was the portion where I where I decided to, to seek therapy. But it's so, so interesting that you mentioned compartmentalizing uh, feelings, because I do believe that it can be a skill in the sense that when you're facing difficulties, you have to first for me at least, think of an action plan, fix things, and then sort of uncover your feelings and how you feel about them. And that's essentially part of the reason why I continue to seek therapy is because, you know, in tough situations, I jump into action. I love problem solving. I'm energized by challenges, not scared of it at all. But at the end of the day, if I just continue doing this in a loop without necessarily getting in touch with myself, it gets, you know, you get jaded and I don't want to get to that point. And so that's where I have this outlet where I can go and sort of dissect all of the things that happened and how I feel about them and make peace with them. Today, what kind of boundaries do you set so that you take care of yourself and put your mental health first? To be honest with you, I think, so I uh, have twins who are 18 months old. And so I think that in itself forces me to put boundaries towards when do I log off and be with my family. And I'm when I'm with my family, I'm 100% there. And then when can I log back on? But those boundaries are set for me by having uh, my twins. And I think if I didn't have them, I probably would have had a little bit of more difficulty. But I'm now, you know, delightfully forced (laughs) to uh, sort of log off at some point, really just be with them. On the weekends, I'm no longer working the whole time. I'm with them. I have to spend time with them. I have to energize myself too. It also came at a time when the company has grown to a level where we hired amazing leaders. And so we divide the responsibility with other people. And so it's no longer us doing everything. And so that is really key as to when I was able to actually uh, set these boundaries. 
You raised money. I know you closed when you were very pregnant. Didn't realize it was twins. So I'm going to say very, very pregnant. <laughs> what was it like to, to raise money for this? Why did you know that you should do a venture raise versus a non-venture raise? So from the get-go, we decided we wanted to be a venture-backed company for multiple reasons. One, I truly believe in the opportunity. I truly believe that we can create something big. I love, love, love the purpose behind changing the narrative around fine jewelry. And it's not just about the jewelry. It's about the whole idea. It's about what we stand for. And I really love that. And I was very passionate about it. So I knew that the opportunity is huge. I knew that, uh, you know, the market is is full of also uh, other players and that speed is really important. So I did want to make sure that we continue to be competitive. And it's not just about raising capital. It's not just about the money, but it's also about who you bring along with you on the journey. And so, you know, our investors, they open up doors for us. They connect us with, with people in the industry. They're there to help us take the company to the next level. And so I'm a huge believer that we, you know, as a person, I need to continue to grow. I need to continue to learn. And so surrounding myself with people who are invested in the company and people who have been there, done that is really, really beneficial for both myself and the company. Fundraising is 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 a hard thing to do and and it's okay if if you decide not to fundraise it's not the only way obviously to build a company uh, but it was it was for us we raised 32 million but my first million was the hardest i always talk about this it took me over 6 months to raise 1 million from a ton of investors because it was you know, I'm raising on an idea. I'm not talking about AI. I'm talking about jewelry at the time when everyone is pitching AI and technology. Obviously, you know, no one wanted to hear about uh, jewelry at the time and, and things are changing right now. And so it was a really, really tough time. But I think it, it sort of set us up for really focusing on what matters for our customers and really focusing on on, on our product and our brand. And then we we went into Series A, and then, you know, one of the key things that I always say, if you want to raise capital, it's really going and, and talking to investors way before that you actually need the capital so you can have that relationship. So they get to know you as an operator. They want to know you as a person. They want to know your partners. They want to know that you deliver what you had promised over time. And so that is the key thing that helped me or helped us get, get to the Series B financing. While I was pregnant, we actually raised from funds who we had been talking to for a while but obviously due diligence takes some time and I remember I was signing the papers when I was in the hospital which is really funny that's crazy yeah I had preeclampsia towards the end so I was in the hospital for two weeks and I couldn't sit there and not work but we essentially signed the papers in the hospital I gave birth were you able to take a real mat leave no no I uh <laughs> I was on calls but I, I should say I, I, it wasn't as intense as I had thought it would be. I was on calls every day for, for certain things, but it's not like I had to be there eight hours a day or anything like that. I think one of the things that we get asked all the time is, I'm an entrepreneur, I have an idea, I need to have investment to be able to get the idea off the ground. How do I know what type of investors to go to? Like, how do I know it's venture? How do I know I should, shouldn't seek other sources of capital? And I'm curious what your advice is around that, how to think through it. Yeah, I think venture capitalists are obviously looking for very fast growth and big, big multiples in terms of growth. And so it depends on where you want to take your company and what you believe the opportunity is. If you believe you're going to build a billion dollar company, and so you obviously will need the venture capitalists to be on board. 
But if you believe you want to sort of build it slow, much slower pace, a lot longer time period, or or maybe the the market isn't necessarily that big, then there there are other alternatives. And so, you know, the first round of financing, it's not a bad idea to always seek, you know, angel investors to seek, you know, government funds if there is any just so you get comfortable with where you want to be, you get comfortable to the product market fit at least. Because obviously, once you go down the route of a venture funding, then the expectations are very different. And so it really depends on the market size, the opportunity, the speed that you want to go in. And you as a person, what do you want at the end of the day? These are, I think, the deciding factors. You mentioned earlier that you have a culture of challenging directly. What does that mean? I'm very, very passionate about creating a culture that is collaborative and that everyone has a voice and that it's not because you're senior than your idea is the one that goes. Essentially, what we love is to nurture the ideation, nurture feedback from everyone. And so if you have an opposite feedback, then you can definitely challenge directly uh, without damaging relationships and definitely can be taken into consideration and we can definitely go down that path. So it's really key for for a leader to nurture that environment where it's not sort of a top-down approach, but it's also an environment where everyone has an impact at this, you know, especially in a fast-growing business and a startup, everyone is building the business. And so everyone gets to voice their opinions, To everyone gets to voice their, their tactics, their strategies, and we get to have a conversation about it. So that's essentially one of the core values that we have. How do you balance kind of a challenge directly culture with transparency? I think they're actually tied hand in hand because once you nurture an environment where you have a relationship that you can actually voice your opinions and your thoughts, and it doesn't have to be negative thoughts. It's just the idea that you can actually talk your, you know, talk about what you have in mind. I think that naturally breaks the barriers between the, you know, we have to hide this or we can't talk about this and it becomes like an open culture. And so transparency is really important for us. It's, we have values that we set for the company and we have leadership values. And so we expect our leaders to be also transparent and we we talk to them about transparency. How aligned is your team? Are they aware of what's going on? Are they aware and aligned with the goals of the company, the challenges and the wins? And so transparency is really key and it's something that we actually measure. So anything that you really want to have as a core value, we measure it over time. And we have obviously employee surveys that go quarterly, or more frequently during COVID, just to make sure that everyone's okay. And we gauge these core values that we really care about. How do you avoid falling into the pitfalls then of decision by committee? Because I love the idea of challenge directly, but it also, you know, I, I imagine that it would be, and you know, something that like we deal with all the time is like, how do you bring a lot of people in to make sure that you are hearing all the ideas and like create hopefully the psychological safety that people can push back if they disagree, but also like sometimes they're not going to like the decision that you make. And if you're in a position of, you know, authority or leadership, like you're going to make the decisions. Oh, absolutely. So, you know, the other side of challenge directly, there are instances where we actually make it clear. Sometimes we may disagree, but we have to agree to move forward together. So even you know, at the end of the day, we're going to debate, we're going to talk about things, but there is an ultimate decision maker in each area. And that ultimate decision maker may, may be privy to more information than everyone else or sort of sees the long term in a different way. And so that decision maker will have, you know, we have to agree while we gather all of the feedback, if there is sort of a point of we can't be always on the same page. And there are instances when we 
have to essentially follow a different direction, but commit towards following that direction is really, really important. And at the end of the day, if you're creating a culture of, you know, the I told you so isn't necessarily positive in these instances. If you create a culture where collaboration is really key, where we're all working together as one team, and if someone had made it, you know, a decision that didn't go as planned, that they're not necessarily punished for it, then you're creating that culture where we can challenge, we can talk about our opinions, and we have to follow the leader at the end of the day, and we have to give it 100%. But we can also reserve the right to pivot if it doesn't work. You know, I say this, and it sounds easier, but it's obviously it takes a lot of foundational work, it takes a lot of alignment. When you pitched Majuri, whether to investors or, or partners, what is like your, what's your elevator pitch? Like your one-liner on it. How do you, how do you explain why it's different? <laughs> it's my favorite thing to talk about, I should say. We're changing the way, the narrative around fine jewelry. Fine jewelry has always been positioned as uh, uh, gifts for women, for men to buy jewelry for themselves. We created a brand for women to buy jewelry for themselves. So it's quite simple. So everything that goes with it from product design to photography to content and brand values is all about that. It's about self-purchase and gifting is a secondary component. But in order to deliver on that vision, we've essentially created an infrastructure that uh, has really proved to be successful over time. So we essentially have our creative agency in-house. So we built the brand from the inside. Our chief creative officer has been there as a founding team member. So there's a genuine connection between us and our community because we've built the brand from the inside and there's depth to it. And we also have our marketing team in-house, which means that all of our partnerships and everything that we do is also in-house and that the creative and the marketing teams can work very closely together to continuously enhance our positioning. And most importantly, we pioneered what is called the drop model. So we introduce products every single Monday, which is something that is unheard of in fine jewelry. The drop model was obviously like a very innovative marketing and product approach. And so really the heart of my question is for those listening that want to create a business in a space that, you know, there's a lot of other players in that space. It's not a new industry. What is your best advice around how to differentiate yourself? So even though when you look at the fine jewelry from outside, you see that it's crowded. Maybe some some fun facts here is it's a $180 billion industry. And I'm not saying that that's our addressable market, but that's a global industry. So you can imagine how big it is. And less than 40% of it is actually branded and the remainder of it is unbranded. So from the get-go, when you look at this, there is a need for brands to come in and really create that relationship with customers, especially the next generation. And so what I define a next generation brand is a brand who's not just creating the product at an affordable price. That's not a pitch or a value proposition. You have to really consistently deliver on your customer experience, which to me is a mix of brand positioning and creative, your marketing, your technology is important because that's how you serve customers and that's how you customize experiences. And your supply chain is also just as important in next generation brands. And we can see that brands now, even legacy brands are now trying to compress and revamp their supply chain so that they're not not necessarily mass producing products that the customers don't want. And so one of the key things for us with the Monday uh, drops is that we get to talk to our customers very frequently. We get to actually have a conversation about real products and understand what they like and what they don't like. And so that, that in itself is building a community but in order to deliver that, you really have to have the basics of the supply chain set up and you really have to have the structure set up. So 
I know this is a long-winded answer, but to me, it's you have to look at the company holistically because it's not just the positioning. It's also how are you going to deliver on what you're saying you're delivering consistently. And that requires the probably not so sexy work behind the scenes around the infrastructures and around the customer experience and technology and the systems that should support your your overall customer experience. All right, we're going to move into our last segment, which is the lightning round. Morning person or night owl? Morning person. Biggest guilty pleasure? Biggest guilty pleasure is chocolate. I I think I share that as well. Uh, Last TV show you streamed or binge watched? Shit's Creek. Oh, me too. If you're starting Majuri over tomorrow, knowing everything that you know, what is something you would do differently? Is it too crazy to say I would not change a thing? No, oh, that's a nice thing. Best part about working with your husband? We both understand what it takes. Worst part about working with your husband? We can't disconnect easily. <laughs> what is the last time you negotiated for yourself? Oh my God, every day. The challenge directly, um, we negotiate with each other every day. (laughs) Well, did you win the last one? I'm not sure, to be honest with you. I think think we got to consensus. I think, yes, I would say we all won. That's a sign of a good deal. Everyone thinks they won. Yes, it's a win-win, I think. It was a product discussion. (laughs) Nora, congratulations on everything. Thank you so much for, for spending some time with us this morning. Thank you. It was a lot of fun. Thanks for hanging out with us. Join us next week for another episode of Skim from the Couch. And if you can't wait until then, subscribe to our daily email newsletter that gives you all the important news and information you need to start your day. Sign up at theskim.com. That's the S-K-I-M-M dot com. Two M's for a little something extra. 